Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Hello, I'm Andy McLenaghan, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Allen from Manchester Metropolitan University and the award-winning storyteller, author and playwright Richard O'Neill. We discuss the discrimination experienced by Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities across the UK and the changes needed to ensure social workers support these communities and address the prejudice and intolerance they face. Thanks very much for listening to Let's Talk Social Work. It's a real joy to make the podcast and we're keen to reach as many social workers as possible, as well as people who are interested in the issues social workers encounter. So if you're enjoying the series, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Writing a review on Apple Podcasts also helps others to discover Let's Talk Social Work. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email the team on ltsw at basw.co.uk. I loved making this episode and I really hope you enjoy listening. Dan, uh, Richard, how are you both feeling? How are you both doing today? Good, thank you. Yeah, good to see you. That was Richard first. That was Dan second. Uh, Richard, where are you at the moment? Whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in North Manchester, Lancashire, on on the edge of the West Pennines, they call it. Okay. And Dan, where are you? I'm in sunny Southport, and it's glorious sunshine today, true to form, although we've had four seasons in one day. We've had hail, a little bit of snow, uh, a little bit of rain, and now it's, as I say, it's glorious sunshine. Good. Well, I'm so glad that you're both joining me for this really, uh, which which I think is going to be a really interesting discussion. And just before we get into it, I just want to highlight at the start that this episode was the initiative of my wonderful colleague, Alison Humes. Alison is the National Director of Basra Kumri, and she's also one of the co-founders of the Gypsy, Roma and Traveller Social Work Association. Unfortunately, Alison is unwell at present and she's unable to take part in our conversation. But before we begin, I want to say a big thanks to Alison for making this episode possible. So um, as we kick off, I think it would be really helpful, Dan and Richard, for our listeners to have a good understanding of the diversity of the different communities we're going to be discussing today. Dan, could you begin by telling us a bit about who Romani and Traveller people are? Yeah, of course. Um, So... Fairly briefly, I imagine there's a there's an enormous range of histories and diversity and difference within the communities that are often uh, homogenised under the label Gypsy Roma Traveller or uh, GRT. Particularly unhelpful, though, uh, uh, as any homogenisation or bringing together of any group under any single banner, a little bit like uh, BAME or LGBT. Um, the communities and the individuals that are often associated with those uh, terms uh, might not necessarily associate or, or recognise their inclusion within within those names either. So Gypsy Roma Traveller is the broadest term, um, as I say, often uh, reduced to GRT. But within that, and within that, within that phrase, Gypsy Roma Traveller is, is an enormous, broad, diverse range of communities. Um, with diversity being specific to countries across the world. In the UK then, uh, Gypsy Roma Traveller 
um, is is usually associated to those communities who have been recognised as uh, ethnic travellers, um, recognised by legislation. Of course, that that doesn't that shouldn't minimise the the identity of communities. And um, the other recognition is communities who travel for economic purposes. Although, of course, as I'm sure Richard will maybe describe later, there's clear similarity between the two. So in terms of ethnic uh, travellers at the moment, because um, um, these communities have been to court to to prove that their lifestyle, their culture, their heritage isn't a lifestyle choice. It can be something that's traced back through history. There are Roma, Irish travellers, Scottish travellers and Scottish gypsies and Welsh gypsies. Now, those communities um, have been to court in, 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 in various different countries, Irish travellers, uh, English gypsies, Scottish gypsies and Scottish travellers in the UK, um, to, as I say, to, to, to seek protection against discrimination on the, on the grounds of ethnicity. So have you ever heard of the Mandela criteria? I haven't. Could you tell me about that? So the Mandela criteria is it started in the 1980s and it's used as a benchmark to determine whether a community of people can um, be pr- protected, what was then under race relation legislation and duty and now equality legislation and duty. Now Mandela was a young man who was um, being, uh, whose parents saved up lots of money and, and sent him to a, a, a very prestigious private school. Anyway, on the first day he arrived at the school, the headmaster said to him, Oi, Mandela, take off your turban and take off your bangle, because that's not school uniform. So Mandela says, well, hang on a minute, I'm not prepared to do that. My turban and my bangles are a really important part of my Sikh religion, an important part of my identity and culture and ethnicity. So it's a really important part of who I am. So I'm not prepared to take them off. And that master said, well, if you don't take them off, we're going to exclude you. So Mandela with the support of his family, didn't take off his turban and didn't take off his bangle and then was excluded from school. In response then, the family took the school, the school to court and um, on the basis that they'd um, excluded him um, on the grounds of racism. And then the Mandela criteria was used as the, um, uh, as the appeal was upheld to show that the school couldn't discriminate against Mandela on the grounds of wearing a turban and wearing a bangle because those two cultural traditions could be traced back through history. Mandela didn't just wake up one morning and decide he was going to wear his turban, put his bangle on, that this is something that was an important part of his heritage. Irish travellers have had to prove against the Mandela criteria that being nomadic and living nomadic lifestyle isn't just something that they have chosen, woken up one day to choose to do. There is significant evidence of history trace, traceable back to pre-Celtic roots, that the, the, the nomadic traditions of, of Irish travellers should be protected in the same way that other eth- ethnic groups should be protected. Same as Scottish travellers and Scottish gypsies, and same as English gypsies and Welsh gypsies. The whole chronology that we have in terms of the evidence of gypsy Roma traveller communities in this country predates um, um, historical records at times that, 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 that we know that there are nomadic communities, travelling communities in the country going back to um, Roman times um, and communities that, that have had to endure um, and live with significant discrimination and hardship because of those traditions. So they're the ethnic groups, um, so-called because of um, legislation. 
Roma, Irish travellers, English gypsies, or Romidi gypsies, Scottish travellers and uh, Scottish gypsies and Welsh gypsies. The economic travellers, so-called because they haven't been to court yet to prove under the Mandela criteria that their customs and traditions have, um, have uh, can be evidenced in history, are new travellers, used to be called new age travellers, but the preferred term is new travellers, showmen and circus people, boat people, um, and, and, and others. Now, although um, those groups haven't been to court yet to, to prove that they are an ethnic minority group, that their cultures, traditions and heritage can be traced back through history, there's clear evidence if they wanted to do that, that they could do that. We know, for example, that there are up to now four generations of new travellers living in the country, uh, that boat people have been around and, um, you know, their, their work and their industry uh, was 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 often the, the the lifeblood of the industrial revolution um, and and the sustainment of 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 the economy in the country, particularly around the canal infrastructure. And uh, showmen, the showmen's guild, which was developed in the nineteen hundreds, was in direct relation to um, the movable dwellings bill. And the showmen's guild has been established now for coming up to. Um, 300 years, um, clearly shows that the history and heritage is there should those communities wish to seek protection under the Mandela criteria um, and uh, the equal um, uh, rights legislation duty. Thanks, Stan. Richard, you are a Romani gypsy. Could you tell me a bit about Romani culture? I can. I mean, I can only speak for my own my own group because what tends to happen in the Romani community is uh, we were I was I'm old enough to be born into a fully nomadic Romani community so we were a large extended clan in a way um and we we traveled around from place to place and we followed the traditional traveling routes my dad was born in an old fashioned horse drawn wagon in the 1920s and I was born in a more modern caravan pulled by a truck in the early 1960s and nothing much had changed um, in that time, apart from, you know, things had got motorised and we could move around a little bit more. But then we were in the 1960s, we were in the age of consumerism, the first consumer boom, and a lot of hospitals, a lot of schools, a lot of new roads were built, and that took away our traditional stopping places. So rather than um, being able to stay in those places, then we were constantly looking for other places to stay. And then 1968, the Caravan Sites Act came out and most local authorities did what they were asked to do and they they built caravan sites. Well, they didn't build enough um, and they tended to build them where people would be um, less likely to see them or kick up a fuss about them. So they'd be next to the disused canal. They'd be next to the chemical factory. They'd be out of town in the worst part of, of the landscape. Um and my dad at the time said, you know, that, that he didn't want to be settled down. And, and, and he thought it was pretty similar to America and the, the Native Americans. And, you know, look what happened to them. That was his attitude. But we, we did have to settle down after a while. But we lived in houses, but we tended to live in caravans in a yard of an old house. Um, and then I, I went to school and, and, and we moved to another house. And then we lived in a caravan for a while. So um, that's been my life for the last... 50, I'm 59 now, so that's been my life for the last odd 50 odd years. So I, I guess I've seen the change from being brought up with virtually Victorian people who were 
mainly illiterate, um, who were lived in fear, really, of bureaucracy. They were the people who had lived in tents. Not, not everybody was rich enough to live in an old-fashioned wooden wagon. So a lot of people, my dad included, in the, in the 1930s, the, the early 30s, they lived in tents. They were nice tents, but they lived in tents. And I guess the early social workers would come along and think it was deplorable that these people were living in tents and they would take the children away. Um, so that's what started, I think, the the real fear of bureaucracy. You know, anybody who came to a gypsy encampment, unless they'd come to buy something, um, anybody who came with paperwork were instantly to be feared and to be worried about. Thank you, Richard. And when we're talking about issues around identity, language is so important. Um, I mean, I grew up thinking that the term gypsy wasn't an appropriate term to use in any circumstance, you know, because it's been used so abusively in, in the past. But that's wrong. I mean, from your point of view, you identify as a Romani gypsy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind the word gypsy. My dad didn't like it because um, I think when he was growing up, he would just see himself as a traveling person. Um, or a Romani person, but the word gypsy he didn't really like because it was usually <laughs> there was there was usually a word in front of it, and the word dirty. So they would they would get called dirty gypsies all the time, and so he didn't like that because of the connotations with it. But it is a legal definition, so you know um, as Dan was talking about earlier about the Mandela criteria and and someone like me is legally identified as a gypsy person. Now people want want to you know and, and it's always worth giving people the option and say, you know how do you want to be referred to? And people might say, well, I'm a traveling person, I'm a gypsy person, I'm a Romani person um, and and I'll take all of those, but legally, um, you know, I always say this to professionals, we absolutely are allowed and you absolutely are allowed to use the word gypsy because it's a legal term. But if somebody particularly didn't like it, you might want to put them down on a form as a gypsy, but call them a traveller if that's what they want. So just to get this right, Richard, you are Romani. So using the term gypsy is an appropriate term to describe uh, your ethnic background in legal terms. That's not a case of using the term in a blanket way for anyone who's a traveller to call someone who's an Irish traveller a gypsy. That would be offensive. Well, I, I'm not so sure sometimes if it would be offensive. You know, I talk to some of my Irish traveller friends and, and they just think it's wrong. Okay. You know, um, it, it would it would be like calling somebody from another ethnic minority um, the wrong name. Absolutely. I wonder if it'd be worth us just, just reflecting on the origin of the word gypsy. The, the, the word gypsy in English, guiantos in, in Spanish, isn't a Romany word. Um, it's, it's, it's a word that has been created by society. And we first see reference to the word that we, we, we get to, um, that, that gives us the word gypsy today is Egyptian. Um, so the Egyptian act, which was um, ratified in the 16th century to, to ban the movement of Romani people from Europe into this country under punishment of death. Then by 1562, we see the punishment of vagabonds calling themselves Egyptian Act being passed. So the word Egyptian gives us the word gypsy today. It's, it's a short, a shortened version. But that, that, that act in 1562, the punishment of vagabonds calling themselves Egyptians, we know to refer specifically to Irish travellers who preferred to, who, whose preferred name is, is Pavi. Um, and, and I think Richard's point is excellent, of course. 
the importance of self-definition can't be understated. Um, so if, if, if anybody is unsure um, about how to respectfully um, talk about ethnicity, it's always best to ask. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. I do think there is an awkwardness and an embarrassment, though, that people feel that they should already know. Um, and that there's something wrong with asking. So it's 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 really good that that message is, is heard. Speak to somebody, ask them how they want to be addressed. Absolutely. In terms of the origin, though, um, why why Egyptian? Where did the term come from? Well, it, it's I, I think especially in England, you know, as 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 we've just just heard, um, fifteen thirty. The the these people come in. A large number of them come in on a ship from France. They speak French and they speak this other language which people don't understand. And they come in, and King Henry VIII is king at the time. He likes this. He's great. They look quite well off, these people, and they're entertainers, they're singers, they're dancers, they're storytellers. And this is great. Um, but, you know, they're darker um, than English people, and they speak this extra language, and they immediately believe that they are Egyptians. And they might have even had uh, a piece of paper with them, giving them safe passage, that said they were Egyptians. So they were known as the Egyptians. And then... As we, uh, as we just heard, by 1530, we've got the Egyptians Act, which bans these people from coming in. And we want the ones that we've got to, to be gotten rid of. And then we start to see then in Shakespeare. Shakespeare knows these people. Uh, and there is um, some interest uh, at the moment in trying to look at Shakespeare's lost years to see if, you know, one set of those lost years were spent with the travelling people. So he seems to be in quite a few places where they are. Um, then we look at Othello, and we look at the line in Othello that says, you know, and this 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 handkerchief was given to my mother by a woman, an Egyptian woman, with great powers of foresight. So we know that, say, a gypsy, a Romany woman. And then we go further through Shakespeare and the language changes. We go from Egyptian and then we go to Egyptian and then we get into As You Like It. And there's a line in there that says, Fie, fie, like two gypsies on a horse. So we know that we've gone from Egyptian and we've shortened it to gypsy. So we've got a, a long timeline of that, of that. And then, you know, look around Britain and, you know, not far away from where I was born. There is a gypsy lane. You look around the country, there's a gypsy common. There's a gypsy corner. So we know we were there. You know, the, those those road signs denote the fact that we were there. And it comes in lots of different spellings as well. Uh, just because lots of things back then, people spelled things differently. Just on that, in terms of um, even Romani, Romani can be spelled with an I, Romani can be spelled with a Y. Uh, do those two terms refer to slightly different things or is it the, uh, different spellings for the exact same people group? They are anglicised. So when we get Romany, you know, it's a nice it's a nice word, isn't it? R-O-M-A-N-Y. It's that lovely curly Y underneath. So, you know, back in Victorian times, that's, that's pretty. Um, but anything spelt with an I at the end of it, which is the way that we would spell it, Rom Romany, um, it looks foreign. And and that's because it is, you know, the, it comes from Sanskrit. Our language comes from India. And it's really interesting when I'm working in schools with kids and they speak Urdu or, you know, they speak Punjabi or they, they speak any of the Indian languages generally, uh, Hindi, that we'll, I'll start talking to them and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll say to them, you know, what about some of my language? And they go, okay. And I'll go, yek, dui, trin, star, panch. And they'll go, oh. 
that you're counting to five and, and that's nearly the same as ours. And we'll, you know, for nose, we say knock and for bowel, we say, you know, hair, uh, hair for bowel. And it's the same language. So it's the, the Romani with an I is definitely, um, we would say, the correct way. Okay. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Richard, in terms of talking about the discrimination that um, the Romani people have faced over centuries um, in in England, um, that discrimination hasn't gone away. That discrimination is current and it's been legislated for at the moment. And I don't mean legislated um, to do away with it. It's been legislated for further discrimination. And I'm talking about the police, crime, sentencing and courts bill, which is currently before Parliament. So my understanding is that that um, legislation, if enacted, is going to create a new trespass offence that would criminalise the way of life of nomadic gypsy and traveller communities. That's a massive issue. It's, it's something that Baswell has raised. Can you tell me a bit about that? It is. It's a huge thing. Um, and, and, and I think what people don't understand, because of course there is a lot of prejudice and a lot of discrimination against gypsies, and nobody ever that I know defends people who don't respect other people's property. It's not our way. There are some people, I mean, we only have to look at last weekend um, when people went out into the parks and tons and tons of rubbish and brawls and the whole, all these beauty spots were covered in rubbish. There are some people who just litter and don't respect other people's property. But what people don't understand is that if this legislation comes in, if you're driving your posh motor home and you're not a traveller and you park up somewhere, um, you will be caught up in that as well. If you want to meet up with a few other people, you'll be caught up in that as well. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's the legislation. If that comes in, it will really, really affect our rights because, you know, we don't have much else apart from the right of free movement. And, you know, if we, you know, I say to people about, and they have short memories because they may not understand about the mass trespass at Kinder, Kinder Scout which a lot of land was owned by huge, you know, huge organizations, huge lords, and they'd inherited this land. And they wanted to stop hikers from walking over these places. And they had a, they had a mass trespass and got the law changed. And we, we, we need to keep those freedoms, not just for traveling people, but for everybody. Because, you know, we don't know in the future that our more young people who can't, uh, from all communities who can't afford homes, can't afford to rent, we certainly can't afford to buy, you know, will they need to become nomadic to be able to earn a living? Perhaps they will. And then they'll be caught up in that again. It's just, yeah, the discrimination is, I'll put it this way. Is there any other ethnic minority that you know of that we still see signs in shops and other premises that ban them from going in? And that's still happening for, for many people? Yeah, it happens all the time. It happens in pubs, happens in laundrettes happens um even you know a couple of years ago one of one of my daughters had gone had taken some people to a uh, ice rink and there uh, in the window of the ice rink no travelers there's that the, the example of pontons recently with irish travelers yeah because that that harks back to i think it goes back to the 70s and before you know the no blacks no dogs no irish signs that used to be seen up around england yes i didn't realize richard that that was still such a reality it does it, ha it happens all the time and you know we even had recently i'm not going to mention the political party um but you know in the northwest of england we had an equalities minister who was handing out leaflets uh against traveling people um as part of their you know their their, their party election 
um, part of the, the election, the council elections coming up. Um, and when challenged, didn't even realise it was wrong. And I think genuinely didn't realise it was wrong. And that, and then that just becomes, that, that racism then just becomes insidious. It's yes. woven into the fabric, you know. Um, we, we often talk about unconscious bias, you know, and that, that's been a big thing over the last few years. And, and I flippantly say, you know, as, as a travelling person, I would actually quite like unconscious bias for a while because the bias towards us is generally not unconscious. It's very conscious and out there. And up front yes. and in your face. Yes. In, in terms of media um, portrayals as well of um, gypsy and traveller communities, I don't believe they're helping very much. I'm just thinking things like, you know, the sort of the big fat gypsy wedding series that was on Channel 4 some years back. Um, I don't believe that was a particularly true reflection of traveller culture. Well, it's it's like everything else in the media, isn't it? it it's, it's what we'll sell and it's what will get people to watch. And it's not a true reflection. Um, it's the people who ended up on that big fat gypsy wedding were self-selecting. They wanted to be on TV. And then of course you've got, you know, you've got to, when you do a reality program like that, you've got to top it each time. It's got to get worse or whatever you, you, you view it as. And I would say this to people, it's very simple. You know, we, when, when people watch TV and, and TV is still watched by millions of people and they see my big fat gypsy wedding and they see a film like Snatch, and they see something else that's got gypsies in it. And that's how they judge all gypsies. That that creates their worldview. And I would say back to them, imagine if you were an English person. Would you like people from somewhere else to think you were a mixture of Downton Abbey and Jeremy Kyle? Piggy Blinders would be the other kind of touch point for me in, in relation to that i don't know if you're familiar richard with the series i am and 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 you know at first it starts off as being a bit of a you know a bit of fun doesn't it the, the peaky blinders and then when we start to look into it and it starts to get very mixed up because they're using the wrong language they're making it up as they go along there's nobody from the romani community involved in there in fact one of my friends um is an actor a romani actor wanted to got his agent to put him forward to to be in just a bit part you know just an extra almost and he didn't get in and another friend said to him he said well you're not dark enough he said in Peaky Blinders they want people to be really, really dark and if you look you'll notice that the Romani people have to be dark and that's not how it is you know we're we're a myriad of colors like every other community those, inaccur- those inaccuracies are really important. If we think back to that, the, those acts that Richard talked about in the 16th century, they, they set the precursor for a psychology, a psychological aversion towards the travelling community, that aversion that exists to this day, to the culminate in blame, that we blame this community for living this lifestyle, this lifestyle choice. We, we know who Stevens Lawrence is, who was tragically murdered in a racially... Uh, aggravated assault in 1993, and Damiona Taylor in 2000. But do we know who Johnny Delaney was, who was killed in the kick? The people, who, the lads who kicked him to death, 15 miles from where I'm sitting right now in in Liverpool, um, where they were kicking him to death, saying "f in gypsy," um, and the judge ruled that it wasn't a racially motivated attack. So what's the difference? We have to understand this 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 psychological condition it that the, the the general population has been subject to since the 16th century probably before you know in terms of more localized examples of discrimination and oppression all the way through now to this slow insidious form of oppression or cultural annihilation 
um, 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 in some aspects, with marked in part by our um, 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 departure from the EU, because the EU afforded specific protection for Romani communities um, under the Roma inclusion strategy, which we're no longer obliged to um, 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 uphold. Not, not that we were really, not that we did a very good job of doing it in the first place, but, but then since 2012, 2015, this slow um, restriction on what it means to be nomadic and then a sense in, in 2015 we say the thing that you could only be despite being recognized as an ethnic minority group under the mantle criteria you could only be seen to be a gypsy or a traveler if you actually travel yet the significant restrictions that Richard's talked about make traveling so much harder that people people people, people often say it's, it's easy to live in bricks and mortar it's easier to, to live in bricks and mortar to access the the same things that you and I take for granted, despite that 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 pull that that being in the blood of, of being nomadic of wanting to travel of wanting to be on the open road right the way through now to what Priti Patel is doing um, um, to, to 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 now criminalise people for a cultural tradition that is otherwise protected under the Equality uh, Equality Act it just doesn't make any sense and in relation to that issue of aversive racism Dan and how that affects the delivery of social work services that's something I'd like to explore can you explain how aversive ra- racism um, affects practice or can affect practice despite despite that a community of people being being you know a part of a, a, a part of the fabric of British society and British culture we, we know very little about how best to how best to engage communities when there are concerns about the welfare of children or where there are concerns about mental health or there are concerns about domestic violence or substance misuse what the work that I've done building on the work from Sarah Kemlin specifically is look at how social workers engage communities and how communities experience social work engagement and for a long time we've talked about the that that often social workers are, uh, are are punitive only become involved when there's crisis and that families as Richard said are fearful of social workers of agents of the states which is said social workers going back to his reflecting on his childhood would would view the people living in a tent um, as as not being consistent with the with the welfare development needs of that child, and here when we start to see an application of of power and values to analyse and understand the lifestyles of others. Now, of course, child protection social workers, mental health social workers, social workers working in community services have a very difficult job to do to make sure that people are being protected and that that um, um, people are being safeguarded. But the fundamental premise of aversive racism is that in social work is important because social workers who consciously, explicitly and sincerely support egalitarian principles, they regard themselves as being non-prejudiced because they subscribe to Basworth Code of Ethics. They subscribe to the International Federation of Social Work's definition of social work, which is all about creating social justice, social equality through partnership working with families and communities to create change. Actually harbour negative views and feelings about Gypsy Roma traveller communities. And what the research started to show using the theory of versus racism is that the unconscious or conscious negative feelings and belief develop as a consequence of this almost natural, unavoidable, this, this sort of functional and cognitive, motivational, social-cultural um, processes that have been 
fed to us through government structures and those political parties that Richard was talking about to inform our view about what is right and what is wrong. And it's those those it's that assessment that are used in the position of power that can have significant impact on the lives of families who are already made vulnerable, particularly those living on the roadside um, uh, as they as they experience multiple uh, levels of inequality and injustice, not just in housing, but in education and employment, too. And then the role of the social worker, if we're not careful, views the cultures, traditions, families what the things that they see, the things that they perceive when they when they when they when they hear the word gypsy to represent a risk. And just on that, um, Dan, in, in relation to economic issues, I mean, if if people from a travelling background or um, Romani communities, um, I understand they have lower levels of economic activity. Um, but if you're being discriminated against in the workplace, that's going to be the the outcome in terms of you know opportunities to to find to find work. That's going to have a knock on impact then in terms of levels of poverty. That's going to have a knock on impact in terms of social work interest, in terms of the the well being of families. Surely there's a role for social work then to be challenging the structural uh, racism which which is disadvantaging people in travelling communities. Yeah, there there absolutely is. But we know that we know that child protection services, mental health services, community-based services are becoming more and more crisis-driven. And that opportunity to become involved in partnership working with families, to work, to co-produce assessments, to understand what life is like through the eyes of children and families is often being reduced. Here then, in addition, we have the potential for prejudice and, let's be honest, racist, anti-gypsyism that impacts on our perception of risk. So I, I interviewed 155 social workers a couple of years ago and, um, and, and, and I asked them to imagine that they um, were, were, were going to be taking part in a, in a child protection assessment. I said, imagine you've come to work on a Monday and there's a referral there from the police. Over the weekend, there's been a domestic um, um, disturbance and the, the, the perpetrator has been taken into custody and you've been asked to go and do um, an, an, a safe and welfare check. And I showed them uh, a picture of a stereotypical house in a stereotypical street. And I said, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? And how is what you're thinking, how you're feeling an impact on your assessment? And they were like, damn, what, what is this? Is, is this a trick? This is normal for me. This, I, this is situations that I'm used to working in. I might be worried about the child and worried about the things that I might find in the house. But, you know, for sure, this is, this is, this is my job. This is what I do. Um, so I wouldn't be thinking and feeling and doing anything differently to what I would usually do. Then asked them the same question, but this time I showed them a stereotypical encampment. In fact, it was the, the, the campsite that, that Johnny Delaney lived on in Liverpool. And I asked them what they were thinking, how they were feeling, and how the, the, the connection between what they were thinking and the feeling would impact on the social work assessment that they did. They said that they'd be feeling scared, that they'd be feeling anxious, that they would be feeling worried, that they would be worried about their own safety, they would be worried about animals, they'd be worried about dogs, they, they would be scared that they wouldn't be able to find the family, they'd be scared that they'd be ran off the site, that they wouldn't be welcome, that there would be non-engagement, that the family would represent a flight risk, that the family would be aggressive. And thinking these things, they started to think then about risk. And they assumed then that the child living in the second picture would be at more risk of harm than the person living in the first. Now, I know that, that not, not every Gypsy Roma traveller person lives on an encampment or a site. I know that. But what we found, what, what was important then, is that those same thoughts and feelings emerged even when the word Gypsy Roma or traveller 
was on a referral. My point then in relation to your question is that because those perceptions, those thoughts, those feelings were acting on the physical aspect of doing social work practice, those opportunities for partnership with families, uh, for, for community engagement, for strengths-based assessments, for appreciative inquiries were lost and, and the threshold for risk was lowered. Therefore, the social workers who I spoke to and who we now theorise through this concept of um, uh, Joel Caval's um, aversive racism shows that, yes, as a profession who's committed to the principles of anti-discriminatory and anti-oppressive practice, actually um, work in discriminatory and oppressive ways with Gypsy Roma travel communities and then forego the opportunities to engage in the type of work that you've just said in terms of uh, addressing economic disadvantage, uh, addressing structural discrimination, because they become part, they become part of that state apparatus of control. I've seen figures as well, Dan, in relation to, this is some of your own research, the incidence of um, children from a gypsy um, or traveller background uh, in terms of the likelihood that they'll be referred to social services and also the likelihood that they'll be taken into care. Those uh, those instances are disproportionate compared to the general population. Yeah, significantly. To understand to understand the, the role of social work with gypsy Roma traveller communities, we have to understand population size. Um, of course, we've got ex- we've we've got research um, and, and people's experiences. The 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 the, the experience that Richard talked about too, about feeling afraid of social workers. You know who 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 are making judgments about the lifestyles of others. But so there's been an historical um, concern, a documented concern since the 1970s, really. But 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 anecdotal concerns that have been spread around the communities that go back long before, as Richard's just explained. Anyway, since the 1970s, a growing documented concern about the over-representation of Gypsy Roma traveller children um, in child welfare services in Europe. Um, all over Europe, we've got examples of, of this research, and that's been predominantly led by the European Roma Rights Centre. But substantiating those concerns with statistical information has been difficult because with the exception of England, other countries within the European Union and elsewhere don't collect data on children according to ethnicity. Now that's because of the horrendous acts and atrocious acts that have been created, that have been um, enabled um, in part by the ethnic identification of people. So with the exception of England, um, government organisations don't routinely monitor information on, on race and ethnicity apart from the UK. And that then, the data that we have in the UK only goes back to 2009, despite Irish travellers being recognised as an ethnic minority group since uh, since the late 1980s, uh, Romany Gypsies the same and Scottish travellers, Scottish Gypsies in 2000. um, The British government only collected statistical information on their involvement with Gypsy Roma traveller people from 2009. Understanding then the scale and nature of child protection with Gypsy Roma traveller children then has to really can only really go back to two thousand and nine. There isn't there isn't seri- there isn't similar information on the prevalence of mental health. You know the number of Gypsy Roma traveller people who are sectioned, for example, or in receipt of community care uh, in the same statistical data sets. Um, so understanding then 
the involvement of child protection social workers with Gypsy Roma Traveller communities since 2009 needs us to understand then how many Gypsy Roma Traveller people there are within the country. It's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we've had this figure bandied around for the last 30-odd years of there being 300,000 Gypsy people in England. And yet when we look at the certain areas around the country, especially up in the north, you know, we've got parts of the northeast. We've got Cumbria. Um, we've got uh, Doncaster, which has probably you know upwards of fifteen thousand GRT people living there. It's the largest ethnic minority in quite a few areas. And you know, when when I try to do some of my own calculations, and you think, well, every village has got traveller people, every town, every city, and so on and so on. We're probably talking around about a million people. And it's always interests me when I go to an area and people say, oh, well, yeah, we know how many uh, travellers we've got because um, we've got two caravan sites and there are a few people on this social housing thing. And I drive through the town. I, I might not have been there before. And within, you know, five, ten minutes, I can tell you where the travellers live. There's whole streets of them. I can spot them straight away. There's probably thousands and thousands of people in that town. Um, but getting back to the... This the social worker thing, which is it is what Dan's just said is fascinating, really. Um, and I guess I'm on the other side of that as well, in that you know we talked about media representation, and I think Dan, that's where some of that stuff comes from. You know, yeah. if you read books as a child, you know, going way back to Enid Blyton and stuff, the the gypsies were always the the wrong uns, the dirty people, and, and you start to go through books, and they're always wrong uns. You know, and, and, and even something like Midsummer Murders or something, you know, a, a drama, um, crime, they're always there and they're always misrepresented. Now, here's the flip side of it for me, because I'm thinking about this as a gypsy person and I'm talking to other gypsy people. And where's the positive representation of social workers in the media? So if you're a person who reads the Sun newspaper or any one of the other, you know, red tops and you're reading through, you never actually read a story or you never hear on TV, oh, social worker does good. All you hear about is when it goes horribly wrong. And one case will take over the whole media for weeks and weeks and keep recurring. And... That's what I think a lot of social workers sometimes don't understand. They're actually up against that with a lot of different communities. You know, and, and I've said this, we've had, we've had some fun about this sometimes in the training sessions where I've said, if you go on holiday or you go to a party, do you say what job you do straight away? They go, no, keep that out of the way. Same with us. You know, if I go to a party or something or, or go to an event, you know, I'm just feeling my way through that part. If they know about me already, then that's it. But if they don't, I'm trying to build up a rapport with somebody. Just have a chat as person to person before the gypsy bit gets in the way. And I think it's the same with the social worker. Mm. You know, the social worker tag, <laughs> yeah. the social worker um, identity will get in the way. And I think, you know, that's that's what I got from Dan was talking there. Um, was that, you know, we've got to try and get people to meet each other as people. Gypsy people are not predisposed to violence. We're not. I had an eye, I've got a, a, quite a, a serious eye problem. Um, and I remember going to a, a hospital a good few years ago to have it checked because uh, there was obviously something wrong with it. 
And the person, you know, knew that uh, it's on my form. And he said straight away to me, um, have you been in a fight? I'm like, why would you say that? You know, I've probably haven't had a fight since I was about nine, you know, at primary school. But again, this this idea that I would be a fighter because I'm from that community, um, it certainly wasn't. But it is that 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 we believe that gypsies are predisposed to violence, gypsies are predisposed to this, they're predisposed to that. And that's what the TV programme shows. But th- that, that presupposition, pre- presupposing negative um, um, behaviours or negative traits, let's say, that Richard's just talked about is so important because it informs the perception, the perception of social workers or those involved in child protection, but as Richard says, it also creates the perception of families towards um, social workers. And there we can imagine that as an impasse then. If the social worker is feeling fear and afraid and is worried about all the things that, that, that they said in that research, then the family is feeling afraid, ashamed, worried about what the social worker do. We, we, we're not creating the opportunity for effective partnership working. And what that means then, going back to the point about population size, essentially we don't know. that The gypsy Roma traveller communities were included, or gypsy traveller communities were included very clumsily in the 2011 census. And it gave us a population size of roughly 57,000, which lots of people agree is a significant underestimation of the actual numbers. Then, as Richard said, the upper, the upper figures, um, as Phil Brown at Salford Uni, uh, the research that he did showed a community of around 300,000. Um, and there we have then somewhere a sense that the community of Gypsy Roma Travel community, uh, people is somewhere in between. So to look at then how we think about social work, because we've got... We've got some information about the numbers of children who are referred to, to social work agencies, children family services, the number of children who go through initial case conferences, child protection conferences, and the number of children who go into care. But to understand then whether those numbers are disproportionate, we need to know the actual number of those communities. Of course, then with the lower estimation of the 57,000, there's a significant disproportionate overrepresentation, even though with 300,000. But luckily, as a third way, the, the Department of Education published their school's um, um, population census. And that shows us that, that, betw- that in 2009, there were 6,434 Irish traveller children registered in state schools. So that's children between the ages of 2 and 18. Um, in the same year, um, they, they showed that there were 27,731 gypsy stroke Roma. So we have an indication then of a population size. Admittedly, it doesn't include children between birth and two. So there's, that's the first limitation with this data set. The second limitation is that it put gyp, gypsy stroke Roma together and it includes them as the same ethnic group. But, 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 but hopefully we've started to show that that isn't the case and putting gypsy with Roma can be deeply concerning particularly for communities who differentiate themselves separately from one another yes they have shared origins and shared heritage but we talked about language um, and the word gypsy translated into romanesque literally translates as dirty so we, we have a significant problem with the the ethnic compartmentalization that the dfe use and despite years of lobbying they they refuse to change that
Anyway, we have an understanding of the the the, the numbers of um, um, travelers of Irish heritage and Gypsy Roma traveler children enrolled in state schools between t- the ages of two and 16, 18. Of course, that requires children and families to 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 record their ethnicity, but we have an indication anyway. So if we compare those statistics to the to the other statistics of ch- social work involvement, we then begin to get to a sense, a more confident sense, not a completely confident sense, but a more confident sense about what's going on. In 2019, then, the statistics show us that one in five Irish traveller children were referred to Children and Family Services. One in five. One in ten Gypsy or Roma children were referred to Children and Family Services. Now, that's in comparison to three in 50 of every other uh, ethnic group. So we're, we're talking about presupposition, we're talking about assumptions, we're talking about risk, but also talking about community fear. So one in five Irish traveller children have experienced social work involvement in their life. One in 10 Gypsy Roma compared to three in 50. That shows us a disproportionate level of intervention that continues now all the way through. So using those same statistical numbers that the DfE has given us, we know that I'll speak specifically about Irish travellers, and then I'll talk about um, Romeo Gypsy. That Irish travellers are 3.3 times more likely to be referred to children and family services than any other child. They're 3.3 times more likely to experience an initial child protection conference than any other child. And they're 2.9 times more likely to experience a child protection plan. And they are three times more likely to enter into state care for Gypsy Roma children, the number is a little less in that they are 1.8 times more likely to refer to children and family services, but then 2.3 times more likely to experience an initial case conference, two times more likely to experience a child protection plan, and two and a half times more likely to experience state care. Now, what these statistics show us is something that's pretty alarming. Now, it's alarming because what do we do with this information now that we have it? There's a concern that if this information became wide known, that families who experience social work involvement may become even more fearful about what social workers are going to do. That these government statistics, if it was widely shared throughout the communities, may create more panic. And put this on top of significant deprivation in terms of overrepresentation in low school attainment, overrepresentation in infant mortality rates, overrepresentation in mental health difficulties, overrepresentation in, in all, all other aspects of social measure of deprivation. So we need to think about what these statistics show us. Now, for a long time, where we've talked about social work practice, we've included it under the, um, the broad umbrella GRT. We need to talk about social work with GRT. This, this podcast is we're talking about social work with GRT. But these statistics show us that we need to split the conversation. That the conversation about social work with Irish traveller children needs to focus specifically on early help, because if we can reduce the number of um, children who were being referred to children family services in the first place, then we're going to significantly reduce the number of children who are coming into care. If we can reduce the number of um, referrals by three times, so it becomes equal to the general population, then we will be reducing the number of children who come into care. We will be reducing that threat. 
that sense of fear, that sense of shame, that sense of anxiety, that sense of trepidation. But to, to reduce then the referrals to children and family services, we need early help. Now, the statistics don't tell us what that early help looks like, but we, what we do know is that more early help is needed. Now, put this on top of the, the, the legislation that we've already talked about and Priti Patel's new bill to criminalise and prosecute people who are nomadic. Here then, that bill, rather than reducing the, the number of referrals to children and family services, could potentially increase it because the early help systems are, are being taken away even further and the responsibility for the hardships that Gypsy Roma traveller people face is being levelled at the, at the doorsteps of those families rather than seen as a political agenda for social change. Now for Gypsy and Roma people, the conversation is slightly different because the number of referrals is lower. But once there has been a referral, the statistics show us that those children are more likely to go into care. So rather than um, interventions reducing over time, we see inter interventions, child protection interventions increasing over time. So what that tells me is that there's something wrong with child protection practice with Gypsy Roma travel communities. Now, the first thing we need to do is understand whether we're talking specifically about Romani Gypsies or whether we're talking about Roma families. And the only way we'll do that is disaggregating Romani Gypsy and Roma. We, uh, recognising differences in language, recognising differences in culture, recognising difference in habitual residency status is going to be massive. That, that Since 2018, we know that Roma people have had to prove habitual residency so that, that families don't get deported out of the UK back to country of origin. We know that because of lots of Roma people have been as associated with benefit frauds, um, um, financial exploitation, that lots of Roma people actually say that they don't want to register for state entitled benefits. They don't want to register for the, the type of services and benefits that you and I might take for granted, for example, because they don't want to be seen as that they're taking finances from the state. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be self-employed. They want to um, earn their own money to look after their own families. But what often that means is that some Roma families are more vulnerable to labour exploitation as they're working in cash-for-hand jobs, um, often under minimum wage, which means that they're not paying, their, paying a tax so that they can't prove habitual residency. So we need to understand what we're talking about. Are we talking about Romani gypsies or are we talking about Roma? Once we do that, then we need to think about what happens after the point of referral, leading up to that point when that child enter, enters into the state care system to make sure that social work practice is more effective at safeguarding vulnerable gypsy or Roma travel children. And Dan, for, for the children and young people that do end up being taken into care, how is their cultural identity being supported and how is their heritage being promoted or is it not... Is that an issue that needs to be addressed? It's a great question. It's something that we didn't really know the answer to until fairly recently. Um, we, have ex ex we have research that talks about the experiences of um, um, children living in institutional settings in Central Eastern European countries. And of course, we know that those experiences are often horrendous um, with significant impacts on the global uh, development of children. Um, until then, the 1990s, the, the only research that we had close at home had been undertaken in, in the Republic of Ireland uh, and the Shared Rearing Service under Mayor Pemberton. Um, but then in 2012, I did some research that, that spoke to uh, uh, Romani gypsies, Irish travellers and, and, and a new traveller actually, who, who had grown up in care, who felt that they'd been, that their, that their cultural identity their sense of family had been completely taken away from them. 
often removed um, from their families. The social services often don't consider friends and family placements, which is uh, legally the, the, the first priority for consideration for placement. Don't consider that because of the stereotypes, presuppositions and racism that exists. So then children are wrenched from their families, placed in transracial placements, transracial foster placements with families who uh, often have no understanding or, or, or sympathy towards Gypsy Roma travel communities. So as those children grow up, they begin to question whether they see themselves as a Gypsy Roma traveller ch- child. Then they begin to think about whether it's important for them to be a Gypsy Roma traveller ch- child. We have examples of, of people trying to hold on to what it means to be a Gypsy Roma traveller person. For example, a girl talked about, uh, uh, well, a woman who talked about being given a, a remembering being given a, a children's home as a, as a toy, uh, when one Christmas uh, by by foster parents uh, and it was a wooden children's home and she said it was it was you know had ele- electric lights and it, and it had bedrooms and it, and it was fantastic but she said I smashed it up and I smashed it up because I don't want to live in a house and I don't want I don't this house that you're giving me symbolizes you taking away my identity I don't want this but then the pressure that she's under, and then she was being labelled as as having behavioural difficulties and being la- labelled as 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 being challenging. Um, and, and as she then begin to realise, well, it's just easy for me just to give up um, because my community obviously don't want me. They, they, uh, I've, I've separated from them. I don't enjoy this ethnic, my ethnic identity anymore. So therefore, I don't want to remain a Gypsy Roman traveller. And it's almost a point of survival, a fight, flight or stay white. Um, you, you, to, coin the, to coin the research in education about how Gypsy Roma travel children and Richard talked about before how identity is important but also how identity can be concealed so that these children could endure um, a suffering through care. But just to imagine that in any other ethnic minority group it's just it's inconceivable you know that's it's it's horrific that that's happening inconceivable uh, but and then what happens for those for, particularly for 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 women and the the women who i spoke to were 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 40 and above but they talked about when they left care when they were teenagers at sort of 16 17 18 then tried to get back into their communities that they that they often felt that they'd been ostracized a because their families were being blamed for not being able to look after children the the, the greatest gift within lots of within all families but specifically within gypsy travel families that the greatest gift is children and then to 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 feel the shame of having that child taken away because that that, that family is not able to look after them um, can can bring shame onto communities and families that last generations so these young women, particularly women who left care then to went to seek, seek the bonds of the community and their family were ostracised, saying, well, hang on a minute, we don't recognise you anymore. You've lost your accent or you can't speak the words or you've been, you've been brought up in a gorger, so a non-gypsy traveller um, household. So, ha- so how do we know in, in terms of those reverse stereotypes? How do we know you've not been sexually promiscuous? Because I've seen the way that gorger girls act on um, um, EastEnders. And are you the same? So then they feel completely outcast and ostracised. And one, 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 one of the women who I spoke to, it was incredibly difficult for her to talk about her experiences. Um, and we'd, 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 she'd ring me up occasionally on the phone. And on, on one, one morning, it was about three o'clock in the morning, she rang me up and she sang me a song. Do you want me to sing you the song she sang me? Go ahead, please do. She sang this. She said, she sang... In my soul there is a hole that nothing can quite fill. I've searched across the miles 
for me time has stood still. I'm still that convoy member, travellers across the land. We have our morals and we are Christian, our loyal moral band. We believe in freedom, in light and love and hope. Even though I keep searching, I cannot sit and mope. I have these precious memories and future happy dreams. So one day I hope to find my kin and then my life begins. Thank you, Dan. That's the first time we've ever had song on Let's Talk Social Work. But it's very poignant. I really appreciate you, you, you relaying that. Um, I don't know that song. She, 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 that was a song that she wrote. And, and it was a, it, she, she took to the road to, to look for her family um, and was incredibly exploited because she was so driven to find her kin but never lost them because she was adopted. So she lost her, 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 her name that associated her to a community. She, she'd lost her accent. She was seen as, as an imposter. And this was the song that she wrote. In the, the only way that she felt able to contribute to the telling her story. Richard, we've heard a lot about the negative stereotypes that Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities face. You work as a, as a storyteller, as a playwright, as an author. And as I understand, a large part of your work is addressing many of those negative stereotypes. Can you tell me a bit about your work and where you're seeing the greatest progress? Um, progress, slow, um, I, I think, uh, t- to be really, really honest. I'm still seeing, I've been working in education now for the last 15 years. I had my first play professionally performed at Edinburgh and then at the Pleasant Fest, at the Edinburgh Festival and the Pleasance up there and then in some other theatres too. And it was it was about a traveller group of travellers who got refused service in a pub just because they were travellers and that set me off on the journey of working in education and 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 in pupil referral units and and so on and so on and and just as dan was saying before um unfortunately we're seeing more children you know i do certain events and people will come up to me and say oh we're actually you know um, foster carers we're looking after a traveler child at the moment but we don't know what to do and it seems you know inconceivable doesn't it that a human being has been trusted to somebody and that those people don't know what to do culturally um that was one of the drivers i think to not only doing the awareness sessions for educators but also working in schools and i work in schools with irish traveler kids uh, roma kids and english gypsy kids and, and it's really fascinating to me. We have four picture books out at the moment. They, they, they've done one every year for the last four years by an international publisher called Child's Play. And these are positive representations of GRT communities. And they've been really fascinating, the feedback from the children. And even I had a teacher who said, my granddad is a gypsy. And he said, I just wanted to share this with you. Um, he said, I read the, he can't read very well, my granddad, he said, but I read one of your books to him and he said he had tears running down his face. And that's just the power of story. And and for me, that's what we need to do. We need to empower our GRT children to be able to tell their story. Your dad's just told a story there. You know, we don't hear or see a program about things like that. We don't hear those own voices on TV or in the media. And that's one of the things that I do is try and get those voices, not only my own voice, but other people's voices out there 
to say, look, this GRT, you know, thing, we are all these different communities. And within these communities, there are so many things that would not only, you know, illuminate your life a little bit if you learned about them, but, you know, they would give you a, a much better insight into what we're all about. You know, we are not those rogues and vagabonds that you constantly keep seeing. We are, you know, these multifaceted people who deserve to have a voice. You know, we've, we've, we've been storytellers for, in England for 500 years, and you can see evidence of that all over the place. And now is the time that we're, we're finding our voice. And so fascinating because it was International Roma Day um, recently. And we had uh, Equity, the Actors' Union. We have a group now within that Actors' Union, the first GRT group. And we had a young GRT actress who led the session for us, with people from all over the world joining the session. And that, for me, was so amazing to see this young person, you know, my daughter's generation, um, just leading this session so eloquent, so well-educated. Um, those are the positive things. Those are the positive signs. And I think, you know, in terms of universities, in terms of social work, in terms of teaching, in terms of all of those, you know, those professions that interact, the, the healthcare interact with, with GRT communities, we need some own voices in there. We need, we need, that's why I was so pleased to do this podcast, because there will be social workers out there who I know are good people, and we're just giving them more information. And, and the key for me is that, you know, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a social worker, whether you're a healthcare professional, you need to have not only the information about GRT communities, but you need to have the confidence to be able to work with them effectively. Because I know you want to. You know, I don't think any social worker gets up in the morning and thinks, I'll do a bad job today. I don't believe that. I believe everybody wants to do a really good job. But if you have the information, if you have the if you're equipped to do a better job and you have that confidence, then it's just much better for everybody. Richard, I'm so glad that you were able to take part. I'm delighted that you joined us. My pleasure. Dan, thank you so much as well for taking part. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, chaps. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone.